Once more, good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. Starting a new sermon series this morning entitled The End of Everything. Uh, we're going to walk through the book of Revelation together. So open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. I want to start at the end of the book. So turn to Revelation chapter 22. It's probably literally the last page in, in, in your Bible, last page of the text. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. Probably the most neglected verse in all the teaching and preaching of the book of Revelation, but I think we neglect this verse to our harm. This is very, very critical. And honestly, one of the things that makes the book of Revelation different from everything else, this right here, this is the only book in the Bible that comes with a curse. You understand this? A curse. And this is what it says. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. Let's start here. I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. Okay, a, a, a curse to anyone who adds anything to the book of Revelation. Now, that right there ought to make a lot of people tremble. Because I'm telling you, in, in my lifetime, and, and I've grown up in the church, I've grown up hearing preachers preach and teach the book of Revelation, and, and I'm here to tell you there's been a whole lot of adding to it. An awful lot of adding to the book of Revelation when the book of Revelation specifically says there's a curse on anyone who adds to it. Now, the temptation to add to it is, is somewhat delicious. I, I, I recognize that. There's a tendency to want to add to the thin places, and, and there is, is a temptation to want to fill in the blanks, and, and, and I, I recognize that temptation. People have a lot of questions when it comes to the end times, and there seems to be a certain obligation on the preacher's part to, to answer those questions. But, but let us start right here with a very simple principle, and, and this is my pledge to you as we begin the book of Revelation together. I don't want to try to sound like I know more than the Bible knows. And nobody gets to know more than the Bible tells us about the book of Revelation or the end of, of the world, the coming of Jesus. Nobody gets to know more than the Bible knows. So anybody who can answer all of your questions or anybody who can tell you who the Antichrist is, I mean, come on. Now, I grew up my preacher always knew who the Antichrist was. Uh, we would do Revelation every couple of years, and he would always tell us who the Antichrist was. And the Antichrist in my lifetime has been several different people. It all depended upon who the Democrat was in the White House. Not a joke. Not a joke. Somehow, miraculously, the Antichrist was always a Democrat and, and in the White House. At one point, my preacher insisted that Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, was the Antichrist. And he said, if you don't believe it, his initials are JC. A curse on anyone who adds anything. So understand, Revelation doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, but it does tell us everything we need to know about the end. Not everything you want to know. 
There will be questions left unanswered, but if Scripture leaves the question unanswered, then we must live with the question unanswered. You don't get to know more than the Bible knows. So, if you can take the book of Revelation, which honestly is not that long, and if you can write 13 books on the second coming, I promise you, you've made something up. You've added to it. If you can answer all the questions about the millennium, or if you can answer all the questions about the second beast out of the sea, I'm telling you, you're making part of it up. We don't have that much, and we don't have all of our questions answered. So with that, let's open up to the book of Revelation and let's get started. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start with the text. Let's just read it. As I was walking in this morning, one of the ladies said, uh, I'm glad you're doing Revelation. That book always scares me. Which is funny. When I was a youth minister, I had two teenage girls one night say, Pastor Tim, Last Friday night, I spent the night over at Denise's house, and, and we turned all the lights out, and we got under the covers, and we read the book of Revelation and scared each other. If reading the book of Revelation scares you, you're reading it wrong. You're reading it wrong. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Get this, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So the book begins with a blessing, ends with a curse. You get that? Begins with a blessing on all who read it. Verse 4, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was Exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It, It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see the voice, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. 
He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, let's stop right there. Let's go back. Go back to verse 1. Anytime you're reading anything, whatever it is, if if you want to understand and interpret it correctly, the first question that you simply need to ask is what kind of writing is this? What am I reading? In other words, if you're at Kyoto Restaurant and you're reading the, the, the fortune out of the cookie, understand? You would probably read that fortune out of the cookie a little bit different than you might read, let's say, a, a, a portion of a textbook for class. Ask what you're reading, and that helps you understand how to translate it, how to interpret it. You would probably read, say, a a, a tweet or a Facebook update differently than you might read a love letter from your husband or your wife. You would read a roadmap, a telephone book. You understand? It all depends on what it is that you're reading. So if we want to understand the book of Revelation, the first question we have to ask is, what kind of writing is this? What, what, What is it? The amazing thing about Revelation is is it is written so that we can understand it, and it usually answers its own questions. So if the question is what kind of writing is it, then understand verse 1 tells you exactly what you're reading. It tells us exactly what kind of writing it is. It tells us that it is a what? An an apocalypse, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there is, is an excellent transla- you know, translation of, of the Greek word, but the Greek word is apocalypse. This is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is where we get the word apocalypse. It's from this verse. The, the word apocalypse, again, is a Greek word that simply means to unveil, to, to pull back a curtain or to reveal something that would be otherwise unseen. So, the book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's, it's, it's a, a revealing of something that would otherwise be uh, uh, removed from our sight. So, the question becomes, what is it that's being revealed? What is it from which the, the curtain is being pulled back? What is Revelation trying to show us? And what's the answer to that? Well, again, it's right there. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is intended to show us Jesus. It is a removal of a veil. It's pulling back a curtain so that you can see Jesus because you need to see Jesus. Because the seven churches to which John writes, they needed to see Jesus. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. 
Every page, every chapter, every verse, every vision shows us something about Jesus. Now, so whenever you're involved in someone teaching Revelation, or you're reading Revelation, just understand, if, if you walk away impressed with something other than Jesus, you're reading it wrong. It's about Jesus. So if, if you're, you're reading a book on the book of Revelation and you come away really, really excited and impressed with the Antichrist, okay, then there's something off about that book you're reading. Because it's not a revelation of the Antichrist, because you probably should know the word Antichrist does not even appear in the book of Revelation. You with me? So if you come away from studying the book of Revelation and you're much more interested in the the battle of Armageddon or the second beast that comes out of the sea, you understand? You come away thinking more about those things than about Jesus, you've read it wrong. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and you are expected to experience an unveiling, a vision of Jesus like you've never seen before. It is a revelation of Jesus. Now, with that, also notice verse 4. This revelation, this apocalypse, comes to us in a very particular form. And, and the book itself is, we call it a book, it's just a few pages, but in its original form, it is a what? Look at verse 4. What is it? It's a letter. The book of Revelation, originally written as a letter. The apostle John is writing a letter. It's just a letter, and he's writing a letter to whom? Seven churches. Now, understand, John is a real person. He's an actual person. One of the earliest disciples of Jesus, the beloved disciple he is called, is probably the youngest of the disciples, and he outlived them all. At the time of this writing, he is obviously on on a prison camp, in a penal colony on an island called Patmos. It was a place where the Roman Empire sent criminals, and John is imprisoned at, at Patmos. And he's writing a letter to seven churches. These are real churches. They're actual churches. They existed in John's day. Seven of those churches right around Ephesus there. These are churches that he knows. Uh, The church Ephesus that that I just mentioned, that's a church that John himself started. That's the church where he preached. This is the church that knows him well. Ephesus is the church that he returns to after he's freed from Patmos. When John dies, he's going to be buried at the church at, at Ephesus. So understand, these are actual churches, real congregations. He knows these people. He knows what they're going through. And as pastor, he's writing them a letter. So, again, as we prepare to read Revelation, understand that. It had its first readers. They were actual people, church members like you, in real life churches, just as real and alive as our church, but back in their day. And the message was for them. Now, it's for us too. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen what the Spirit says to the churches, Revelation will say. But it's first for these churches, for these people. And it would be completely expected that they would be able to understand this. John isn't playing some joke on them. The Holy Spirit isn't going to inspire a book that they can't possibly understand or interpret. There is every expectation that they will know what this letter means when they hear it read in their church. You understand? So we have to, if we're going to understand it ourselves, the key becomes to begin asking ourselves, what would it have meant to the original people, the original churches who read it? 
Now, it's for us too, but let's start with them. Understanding Revelation begins with understanding what the letter would have meant to its first readers, these seven churches. It cannot mean to us what it never would have meant to them. Y'all with me? You understand? It can't mean to us what it wouldn't have meant to them. We start with them. We start with the message as it was given to those seven churches. So let's start there. When you start with the seven churches, you suddenly realize something very important about the book of Revelation. This is, this is persecution literature. It's about persecution. And that's something that you and I don't know anything about. Not really. It's about the year 95, something like that. We're right at the end of the first century when John is writing. Remember, it's in history. He was a real person in, in a real time. About the year 95, and, and we're in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, if you paid attention in history, was this vast, amazing political enterprise that continued to conquer barbarian hordes and, and incorporate other nations. It just grew and grew and grew. And all of the seven churches that John's addressing, these are churches in the Roman Empire. Now, as the empire grew, of course, establishing unity and loyalty became very, very difficult because they're conquering nations. So, so by the time John writes, there is a new Caesar, a new emperor for the Roman Empire, and his name was Domitian. Do some research on Domitian if you really want to understand Revelation. Go Google his name. Domitian was a brutal emperor. I don't know if, if he really believed it, but he at least wanted other people to believe that he was a god, that he was divine. Now, history tells us that he's just kind of a little ogre of a man. He's just sort of ugly and short and sawn off and overweight. And, and literally, in, in history, we're told that he had this wart on his forehead. And when people would talk to him, he would pick it till it would bleed. Okay? That, that's, that, isn't history fun? I, I, mean, I mean, that's what he would do. He was just sort of this, this, this ogre of a man. But he presented himself as some sort of God. So he would have these gargantuan statues of himself made. And understand, in the statue, he looks awesome. The statue doesn't have the little bloody war. You understand? He looks like a god. And the statue was just gargantuan. And he would put these statues in the main cities of the Roman Empire, like the city of Ephesus, one of the churches that he's addressing. It wasn't just a statue, though. Domitian would erect these giant statues of himself, but they would be hollow. We know this because we can find the statues. Google it. Look it up. You can still find fragments, and the statues would be hollow so that you could put a priest. You could put somebody inside the statue. Now, why would you put somebody in the statue? So the statue can talk. It's a dumb idol, right? And you're trying to get people to worship it, but man, it would be a lot more effective if the idol can talk. So you put a priest inside and talk and freak people out. I could do that all day long. Wouldn't that just be hilarious to be the, boo, yeah, hey. Yeah. And put a guy inside the statue so that the idol could speak. So by the time Revelation is written, Caesar worship is, is empire-wide, all through the Roman Empire. You have to worship the emperor. This is not a problem for most people in the ancient world because they were polytheists. What's that mean? They had more than one God. 
And if you have more than one God, adding one more is not a problem. And, and so throughout the Roman Empire, they would just worship Domitian along with their other gods. That there wasn't a conflict. If you have multiple gods, you're usually afraid of leaving one out anyway. So they would just worship Domitian and, and have no problem with that, except for the Jews. Jews and Christians, as you know, are, are monotheists, which means one God, one God. In the Roman Empire, especially in this earlier time, the Jews had an exemption. They were not required to worship the emperor, at least not at first. But the Christians were. That means that these churches in the Roman Empire and the others like them are on a collision course with the state. When the state requires that you worship the emperor and you refuse to worship the emperor, then you become an enemy of the Roman Empire. And from Caesar's perspective, you need to be destroyed. Persecution for these churches is real. Understand, John himself is writing from prison. Why is he in prison? Preaching. He's now treated like a criminal because he preaches. If you know anything about the life and death of the apostle John, do you know that even before he died, they tortured him, trying to make him stop preaching. They tortured him by boiling him in a cauldron of oil. They deep fried him. So the book of Revelation is persecution literature. It's about suffering. Look at verse 9. John is beginning his conversation with the churches, and he says, I, John, am your brother, your partner in, say the word, suffering. I'm your partner in suffering. Now, now again, I don't mean to speak disrespectfully of so many people who've tried to preach Revelation faithfully, but in most every sermon I've ever heard, the message that was preached was that when you read Revelation, you just need to understand that, that before things get very bad, Jesus will come and take you out. That, that you'll never have to suffer like the world. That things could get bad before it gets really bad. Jesus will come and snatch you out because he's not going to ask his people to suffer. But that's not what Revelation says at all. That's not what Revelation says at all. There is no insinuation that Jesus is going to come and snatch you out before it gets bad. I think the reason that appeals to us in the United States, though, is because we don't know anything about suffering. Now, all around the world, from the very beginning, the church has suffered. Christians have suffered. They have bled and they have died for their faith. We don't know anything about that. And I think it's why we find it very, very difficult to relate to and understand the book of Revelation. It's persecution literature. It's all about suffering, and we don't understand or know anything about that. And that's why when we read it, we tend to somehow confuse it and pervert it. But there's no way to rightfully understand and interpret the book of Revelation unless you get inside the heads and hearts of these people who are suffering for their faith. Understand, John writes to Christians who will be asked to quit their faith, lie about it, compromise it, or die for it. Those are the first readers of this book. These are the ones that the letter is addressed to. And if you're going to understand what the book of Revelation is about, you start here. You have to understand what it would be like to be a Christian who is being asked to abandon the faith or die. Abandon the faith or die. 
I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was in the spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands and and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like white wool, as, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze. And, and, and that's where you're saying, yeah, Brother Tim, right there. See, that's where you're scaring the kids. You know, eyes of fire and, 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 and a sword coming out of his mouth and feet like bronze. That, that's what scares the kids, Pastor Tim, right there. Don't you get that? No, this is what you're not understanding. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Okay, so this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Pulling back the curtain to reveal Jesus to you. And this is the Jesus that is revealed. This is the Jesus that we see. And, and what is this about? Now remember, in everything else that John writes, he emphasizes the fact that he's an eyewitness. He saw Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, we're told that in the upper room at the Last Supper, John, this John was the one sitting right next to Jesus, close enough to lean into his bosom, it says. He's right there, right there by the very heart of Jesus. John is close to Jesus. He knows Jesus. He's seen Jesus. But this is a very different Jesus. This is a very different picture of Jesus. This is not some pale Galilean, understand, who's walking and, and, and talking with people. This is a very different picture. Understand, it's a revelation of Jesus. What the churches need is to see Jesus because, honestly, we can live or die with great hope because of Jesus. They need to know Jesus. They need to see Jesus. And this is the Jesus that anchors their faith. Yeah, but Brother Tim, all the eyeballs of fire and, and a, a tongue like a sword. Well, what is that even about? Well, why is it like that? And, and see, this is where you sort of have to begin to understand Revelation and, and really begin to pay attention. It's not that strange. We describe things like this in, in our lives. When something is so beautiful or so amazing that you just run out of words, or when you want to express or describe a person, not just what they look like, but, but their, their attributes, their qualities, you start using language like this. Most of you know my wife is Casey. We've been married 26 years. I love this woman. I, I love this woman so much. Don't even get me started. Okay, I'm started. I love this woman. And if I were to describe her to you, I would probably want to say something about her hair because her hair is so beautiful. I love her hair. When I met her, she was a lifeguard, and she would sit up there with her. She had this blonde streak. I mean, it just melted me. Her hair is just this fountain of hair. It's so beautiful. And her eyes, if you ever look my wife in the eyes, do it, people, do it. Uh, her eyes are beautiful. They are blue as the sky. It's so, 
so perfect. Her lips, I, I, I love her lips, man. Uh, maybe like a rose, you understand? I mean, just uh, so perfect, so, so beautiful. And you understand my language here? Her lips are like a rose. Her eyes are like the sky. Her hair is like a fountain. If we drew that picture, would she be pretty? If we drew the picture of her with, you know, a fountain of hair and, you know, eyes like the sky and, you know, you know mouth like a flower. No, but understand, I, I'm describing her in this way so that you understand it's not about taking a snapshot of her. It's about really understanding the person, understanding what it would be like to be in her presence, to love her like I love her. So when John describes Jesus in this way, it's because they need to learn to understand Jesus in, in this way. For, for the very, very simple reason that you can't have strong faith in a weak Jesus. And these people need strong faith. They need faith in the most serious kind of way, more than you and I could possibly understand. They need strong faith, and for that, they need a strong Jesus. They need a Jesus who is bigger than Domitian the emperor. They need a Jesus who is bigger than all the kings of all the nations of the world. They need a Jesus who's bigger than the entire Roman Empire. They need a Jesus who is bigger than their tribulation. They need a Jesus who is greater than their doubts and their fears. You need a Jesus who is greater than your doubts and fears. You need a Jesus who is greater than your temptations, than your sin, than your lust. You need a Jesus who is greater than your marital problems. You need a Jesus who is bigger than your financial problems. You need a Jesus who is bigger than your relationship problems. You need a Jesus who is greater than your sin. Do you understand? You can't have strong faith in a weak Jesus. And the reason so many of us have weak faith is because we have this concept of a very, very small Jesus, a very weak Jesus. I mean, he's not that weak. He's strong enough to get you to church on Sunday, but not much else. I mean, he can't even really get you here on time. And some of you can't really stay awake through it, you understand? But he's a big Jesus, but not that big. He's not so big that you would ever perhaps worship him or surrender to him or submit to his authority. You understand? You can't have strong faith in a weak Jesus. And the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain, removes the veil to let you see Jesus as he is, exalted and living and powerful and mighty and eternal. You need a Jesus like this. You need to know who Jesus is. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Now, that's happened before. If, if you've read the Gospels and if you've read what John says, that's happened before. Do you remember it was Peter, James, and John were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration? And there, not like this, but, but, but in an earlier and, um, and just partial sort of revelation, they were able to see Jesus in his glory on, the, on that Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that story? And it says there that when they saw him, when he began to just burn in the brilliance of his glory, they fell on their faces. They, they, they fell at his feet. Have you ever experienced anything like that? I mean, your own view of Jesus, your concept of Jesus, does it ever I I inspire 
that kind of worship, that kind of overwhelming surrender before him. But because here's the thing, if the Jesus you know inspires no shock, no fear, no awe in you, then you don't know Jesus. You don't know him. If you don't fear him, if you don't surrender to his authority, if you can sit through church, yawn your way through church, walk out, and not give another, another thought of Jesus till, till next Sunday, I'm telling you, you don't know him. You don't know him, but you need to know him. When John sees him as he is, when Jesus in his glory is revealed, he, he falls at his feet. He thinks it's going to kill him. I don't know how he could possibly live through seeing that kind of glory, that brilliance. Do you know anything about that? You know, the thing is, when it happened at the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Jesus in his glory and fell at his feet. And, and here, at, at the beginning of this vision, when, when, when Jesus is revealed in his glory and John again falls at his feet, if you notice in those stories, the same thing always happens. When someone falls at Jesus' feet like this, when they see his glory and, and, and are overwhelmed and, and just crushed by his glory, every single time Jesus goes to him and lays his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Jesus always moves toward the person who's on or face before him. Do you understand that? He always moves toward the one who somehow sees his glory and, and falls down. Jesus moves toward that person. So in your life right now, if, if you feel far away from Jesus, far away from God, if, if what I'm saying is like a foreign language to you, I'm telling you, this is where you start. If you want Jesus to come near to you, then the place to start is on your face. The place to start is at his feet. You get a vision, a revelation of who he is in his glory, in his might, and, and you fall on your face before him. This is where you start, and he always moves near to the person who is on their face before him. If your vision of Jesus inspires no shock, fear, or awe, then you don't know him. You don't know him. You need to know him. The book of Revelation is intended to show him to you. You need to see him. It was written to seven churches originally. Seven churches for whom persecution was real, and the stakes of following Jesus were now very high. And you know they all had one question. Is it going to be worth it? Is going to church going to be worth it if we could die for being in attendance? Would preaching the word of God be worth it if it were the last sermon you preached before you were boiled alive in oil? Would being a Christian be worth it if you could watch your children die before your very eyes for, for your faith? Would it be worth it? It's the human question that the churches would be asking, knowing their suffering, the brutality of persecution. Is it going to be worth it? Understand, the book of Revelation is intended to answer that question, and the answer is important. That because of Jesus, because of Jesus, it 
will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. Pray with me. Lord, although I am the person on the stage in the spotlight, Lord, I, I pray that I not be the one seen. And although it is my voice ringing through this microphone, Lord Jesus, I pray that it not be my voice heard. This is not my sermon. It's yours. And this is not my moment. It's yours. And this is not my word. It's yours. And these are not my people. They're yours And Lord God, your people need to see you. They need to hear your voice. They need to know your power. They need to see you alive and mighty and powerful, Lord. They need to see you, but I don't know how to show you to them. I don't know how to preach in such a way where where people see your face and fall down in worship, in fear, in awe, and surrender before you, Lord. I don't. I don't have that power, Lord. So, God, please, Sunday after Sunday, on this day of all days, Lord, let me preach the word in such a way where I disappear into the word. I mean, preach the word in such a way, Lord Jesus, where people begin to see your face and you begin to be lifted up because, God, your people need to see your face. They need to know you. Lord, I pray that you would pull back the curtain that that blocks the view of this church, Lord, so that they don't see your face, so that they don't know your power. Lord Jesus, I pray that there would be an unveiling as we open the pages of your word, Lord Jesus, that, that people would fall before you in worship and surrender. Lord Jesus, my fear is that this congregation has this view of Jesus that is simply so small. God, I can't make you bigger with words and with preaching. You must show yourself. Lord, we don't know the struggles and the suffering of the ancient church, but Lord, we still know trouble. We have our own tribulations. We have our own sorrow. We need to know that you're big enough, Lord to save our lives, to change our lives. We need to know that because of Jesus there's something worth living and dying for. Lord Jesus, we need to know that you are the one who holds our lives in your right hand. I can't show you to your people with a sermon, but I can lift you up. Oh, Lord, be lifted up so that every eye can see you and so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord, that you are alive, that you were dead and now live again forever, that you and you alone have words that cut our hearts like a sword, that you and you alone have power to forgive our sins, that you and you alone have power for our lives, that we might live in victory and not defeat. Oh, Lord Jesus, be lifted up and draw all of your people to yourself.
open our eyes, pull back the curtain, that we might see you and know you as you are. We pray these things in your powerful, precious name, Jesus.